How about you guys open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. So we're going to be reading this morning, John, chapter 5. We've been in a series going through this great Gospel, and that's where we're at. Get my stuff together here. If you guys don't have a Bible, uh, we will have the Scripture up on the screen. All right. I'm actually going to pick it up at verse... Nine and I forgot my glasses, so I'm just going to leave this up here so I look really spiritual. But then I'm actually going to read it from here because the font's a little bit bigger. Just kidding. It's all all for a show. Anyways, um, John chapter five verses nine through eighteen. If you guys would like to follow along, it's going to be up there. I want to read this. Um, basically, what we've been looking at is one story over the past two weeks. It's the story of a guy who is paralyzed. Jesus heals him. Uh, we're going to kind of dovetail into that in just a moment here but let me go ahead and read at verse 9 we'll read down to verse 18 so just follow along now that day was a sabbath so the jews said to the man who had been healed more on him in a moment it is a sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed but he answered him he said the man who healed me said to me take up your bed and walk then they asked him who was the man that said to you take up your bed and walk and now the man who had been healed, did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple, and he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, and nothing, so that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, But Jesus answered them and said, My father is working until now, and I'm working. Verse 18 is kind of summarizes the whole little thing here. It says, uh, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal or one with God. And this is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get to work looking at this. So, God, right now we ask you that you would open our hearts, our eyes, our understanding to who you are, to what you have in store for us. So we entrust all things into your care this morning. God, I pray that anything I speak that is not consistent with who you are, your heart, your scripture, God, I pray that it would fall by the wayside. Uh, so let my words uh, be representative of, of who you are. So again, we lay all this down at your feet. We invite your presence to bring transformation to our hearts. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, hey, before we jump in, uh, real quick, I want to just reference uh, you men before I forget. Two quick things. Number one, uh, men, we have our men's group that meets this coming Wednesday. If you are a male and you are not plugged in anywhere, you don't have connections, you don't have a small group that you're connected with, you don't have a place where you are known and you are being able to be known by or to know other people, to be known by other people, to use the gifts that God's given you to step into all that God has for you. My invitation to you is to join me on Wednesday night along with a bunch of other men that are just pressing into all that God has. It's been quite amazing just to be part of this. We've been going through the book of James and just kind of making our way, I should say crawling our way through this incredible book. Uh, But one of the things that I've found as a takeaway that uh, I've just been watching and observing are the guys that have been involved in it. I'm I'm, I'm loving the fact that I'm watching like real-time discipleship happen. People are being transformed, shaped into the image of Jesus. That's our end game. That's our hope here as a church. Uh, just so that you know, our, like, our, our hope here as a church is not to become this big 
monster megachurch where you have kind of a celebrity stuff going on. That's, that's not our aim. Our aim is not that typical traditional style church that oftentimes gets uh, publicized or gets spotlighted within the American culture. It's not our hope. Our hope is to go deep, is to build deep roots. Our hope is to plant trees spiritually so that maybe we might not even be the one that enjoys the fruit, but our grandkids will. That's our hope that a generation from now or maybe even a couple generations from now, the, the, the hard work of discipleship and obedience that we have put into the ground and the soil will bear fruit for a whole other generation. Like my hope is that, that the young kids that are being born into our church right now, there's like a heck of a lot of them, which is awesome. My hope is that there would be such a framework so that when they're 16, 26, 36, 56, that they have a good, solid root system that's saturated by the gospel, that they live into all that God has for them. I'll be, I'll be dead by then, but that, that, that's the hope, is that, that what we're doing here today will leave a legacy for generations to come. So one of the ways that we do that, men, men, is we do the hard work of discipleship today. We plant our lives deeply in the soil of, of God. We live obediently to all that God has. We live in a way of where we're connected with other men. So that's just kind of my, my, my brief advertisement to definitely get involved in men's group. And again, if you've not been part of the little men's uh, group that uh, keeps you update, updated, just go ahead and scan that, and that will get you linked into all the stuff that's been happening within our church. Lastly, Immediately following the service, the teaching here, we're going to just kind of create like what we did last week, a little bit of space just to respond in worship and prayer, uh, confession of sin and just connecting and whatnot uh, with what God wants to do in this space here. Uh, one of the reasons for that is um, we just we're, we're sensing God doing something in our nation. Um, I just, just so that you know, we, I, I work with a bunch of other pastors and ministry leaders here on the Central Coast, or specifically in Slow. Um, there's a couple dozen of them. And our aim is to meet on a monthly level, or a month, monthly uh, rotation or cadence. And uh, this past uh, week, we met here for our monthly thing at literally right next door in this little room over here. And uh, it was awesome just to, to pray for one another and pray for what God is doing and to really kind of discern what's happening here on the Central Coast. And one of the things that's kind of unanimous amongst all of us, we're sensing right now there's a, there's a work of God in the nation where people's hunger is rising for God. And I think that's, in a lot of ways, it's, 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 it's not only beautiful, but it's, it's obvious in a sense where what has been fed to us as a culture, at some point, it's like spiritual junk food. And it leaves us empty and broken, fat, lethargic, destroyed, ruined with spiritual clogged arteries. And the fact of the matter is, is that, that I, I think there's a fresh move of God's spirit sweeping over our land that is awakening people's hearts and souls to, to life. And, and our hope as, as a culture here on the Central Coast, we, we realize the soil in San Luis Obispo, if you want to think of it that way, the soil that we are planted in here, um, not only in Slow but on the Central Coast and California in particular, is way harder than the soil that's like in Texas or North Carolina. I just came back from North Carolina. Or the Bible Belt. You, you get the idea? So we, we've sensed the, the importance of really praying that God would break up the fallow ground, the hardened soil in our culture, so that lives, people like you and I, would really awaken to all that God has. Um, we realize there's massive uh, pushback to that. There's massive obstacles to that. Number one, 
we have so much being shot at us on a constant basis, like through social media. There's so much to distract us with that we are easily distracted, and we're just we we easily satisfy our our appetites, our longing for something with all the junk food that's around us, spiritually speaking. Um, and therefore, it takes away, it steals away our longing and our desire for God. But our, but our hope as a church community is kind of do our little part and just say, we're going to press into all that God has. So immediately following service, we'll dismiss you guys. If you need to leave, you're more than welcome to leave. Um, if you have uh, children in the back, um, you'll need to leave anyhow to go pick up your kids. So I'll, I'll remind you of that. You're more than welcome to bring them back in here if you'd like. We'll, and we'll play a handful more songs as soon as we're done and, you know, maybe go half an hour, 45 minutes or so, something like that. Just kind of just trust God to, to meet us. We'll spend some time praying for one another. Um, if you want to stick around for, you know, 30 minutes and then leave, you're more than welcome to do that as well. 20 minutes, whatever. It doesn't matter. The, the big idea is just to create some space where we can press into all that God has. Sound good? That was kind of enthusiastic, but thank you. All right, we're, we're going to jump in uh, John chapter 5. Um, what I want to look at here today is, is this passage, if, if you are uh, just to reiterate, kind of brings to the forefront the, the conflict. And there's a conflict that's going on in here. Did you, guys, did you guys catch it? I mean, obviously, it kind of ended with this, like, and they sought to kill Jesus. That kind of references that some sort of conflict's going on. People don't, like, get bullseyes on their back or on their forehead uh, for, for doing nothing. People uh, do something, and then it kind of creates this sense of urgency and angst amongst others, and that's exactly what happens. So Jesus now becomes targeted and singled out and is uh, one that is being looked at as one who's going to be killed. Now, again, we know the rest of the story. Most of us do that Jesus does end up being killed, which means if you're reading it kind of uh, chronologically, you realize there comes a point where, oh, wow, the bad guys or the religious folk, they won. But we know the rest of the story because actually Jesus rises again from the dead, which, by the way, we are in Easter season, which is kind of the 40 days of Lent leading up to uh, the time of the resurrection where we celebrate that, that, that Jesus actually gets the last laugh, if you want to think of it that way. Not in a mocking sense, but in a sense where celebration. Jesus wins. Jesus overcomes all forms of brokenness and destruction and ruin and all forms of um, distortions that are brought about by religion and whatnot. But until we get to that place in the story, we have to follow the story along. And at this particular point right now, we see Jesus going around doing good, healing people that are lame, like we just saw this story last week. And then now, because he does it on a particular time frame, within a time frame that kind of goes against the religious traditions that they had, it creates conflict. So again, we'll just basically look at these three things. I think the slides, the slides working? No, no, not working. Oh, they're, they're working. Good. All right, we'll just take a look at these three things, the, the context of all of this. Number one, we'll take a look at the healed man. We'll take a look at toxic religion. I'll distinguish that from from good, genuine religion. Um, and then we'll take a look at Jesus, because he obviously is sort of the crux of all of this. So number one, the guy that we just identify here is the healed man. I'm not going to spend a lot of time just looking at him because I would reference last week's teaching. Uh, but what we saw w- with regard to this guy are three specific things. Number one, he had a broken body. He lived according to a failed myth. And he had a sinful heart. Jesus says, uh, make sure that you don't sin any further unless something worse happens to you. So all three of these things this guy is basically bound by. He's in- enslaved by these things. And Jesus sets him free and heals him. Um, so as we kind of move on, we move on into the very next thing, which is with regard to the idea of toxic religion. I want to distinguish this from 
from pure and genuine or undefiled religion. So if you want, you can write this down in your notes. James chapter 1, verse 27. I'll just read this to you. If you want to pay attention, listen to this. He says this, James. Pure and, uh, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God and the Father means caring for the orphans and the widows and their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. And I think the thing that James is, is saying here that I want to distinguish, because I, I realize um, we oftentimes can, can cast a bad light on religion in general. Um, but again, Scripture is pretty clear that there, there are pure forms of religion that are good, genuine, life-giving, um, that actually bring about good, uh, that bake good into it uh, distinctly. Um, but there are also distorted forms that are destructive and bring about destruction and ruin for, in the lives of other people, what we're just simply calling uh, toxic. But I want to make a couple statements just to bring some clarity. Uh, pure religion, James tells us, is this. In the eyes of God the Father, cares for the widows and the orphans. In other words, it looks for those that are marginalized and hurting and going without and in need. And actively looks for ways to be a source of blessing and life to them. That's what pure and undefiled religion. But that's that's only part of it because it then goes on to say, um, and as he finishes this little section here, uh, refusing to let the world corrupt you. Another translation might say keeping oneself unstained from the world. So uh, the word that we would use for that in the New Testament is holiness. Living in a lifestyle, in a pattern that is uh, in keeping with holiness. Um, are there corrupting influences in the world around us? Absolutely, all the time. Um, you, you might want to take an assessment of your own life, honestly. It's just what are the sources of corruption that might be in your life? I was listening to a guy talk the other day. I'm not even sure exactly what the content was, but he used the analogy of, of a refrigerator. And in that refrigerator, I think he was talking about like toxic thoughts that we can cultivate, you know, toxic thoughts of, you know, uh, self-pity and so on and so forth. But he made the analogy of like a refrigerator. So you can have really good food in that refrigerator, but if the food in that refrigerator that's good is consistently, constantly, quickly uh, prone to spoilage, uh, he says that might be a good time to do an assessment upon your refrigerator because there might be something in the refrigerator that's causing the spoilage to happen quickly and fast. It'd be silly to keep that... Uh, source of dysfunctionality in the refrigerator and not move it out. So again, his whole point was like, you know, get rid of the negativity and the bad thoughts and the bad vibes and so on and so forth. But the point of the matter is, I think that the, the analogy stands on its own, that the same is true with regard to our own lives. Like, what are those areas in your life right now that are prone towards goodness and beauty and truth, scripture, life, but also at the same time, those might be prone to spoilage in your life right now. Consistently, over and over again, simply because of the choice of people that you associate yourself with, people that you give yourself to. And again, there is a fine balance as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, to say, to maintain relationships with people that are not like you, that are not Christian, that don't have the same worldview as you, that don't have the same morality or same ethics, the same sexual identity or understanding about identity and whatnot as you do. And if you live yourself, live your life in an insulated bubble where you have no association with other people like that, I would say that's, that's not healthy either. Because that, that could be um, an indicator that you are kind of insulating or isolating yourself from people that really need Jesus, that need to live in the light. Um, but at the same time, we can find ourselves being around people, and we, over time, become to a, uh, in, into a place where we adopt the mindsets, the ideas 
that are endemic within those around us that don't live and represent and mirror the heart and the mind of God. In other words, we are prone, all of us, towards places of unholiness. And the, the aim of a Christian, uh, by the grace that God gives us, is to say, I really want to live in a way that, that loves God, that demonstrates devotion to him in all of life. Christianity, guys, is not a set of rules. Christianity is a lifestyle that's based upon an announcement that Jesus has resurrected from the dead. Get that right. If you don't get that right, then you will reduce Christianity to nothing more than a rule book. If you do that, what ends up happening is you live by this rule book and you frame morality around that. And there may be some elements that, that, that dovetail into actual historic Christianity. But at the same time, there are distortions that are going to come out as a result of that. You're going to look at other people as a means of disdaining to, over them, uh, of them because they're not aligning the way that you are. But the framing of the entire Christian world is a whole-of-life transformation around this announcement that God resurrected Jesus from the dead, and he alone is king and lord over all things, and we have been given freedom, forgiveness, hope, life, transformation in what he's accomplished. And, and in that announcement, we align our lives around that truth and say, I will live my life in accordance to that. And as we do that, that the, the, the framing of that would be described as holiness. I'm living my life in a way that aligns with the heart of God. Uh, it's way too easy in this culture to live our lives out of alignment with the way that God intends. And yet, at the same time, deceive ourselves into thinking that we are in alignment because we go to church or we've got you know, certain Christian friends peppered throughout our lives, but there's really no true actual transformation in our hearts. And so the point that he would describe here is that good, true, pure religion is something inside of God that looks like caring for those that are in need, but at the same time living in a way that's holy in our lifestyles. Now, I want to jump into just thinking about a variety of different types of religion that we have within our culture. Now, again, I, I want to use the word religion, a, a to toxic religion, in a broad uh, sense. That uh, even though we live in a culture today that is, for the most part, broadly, widely secular, that does not mean that people are still not religious. Now, we like to say, you know, it's, it's common today to be like, I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious. It's a very common phrase today. I'm spiritual but not religious. What does that exactly mean? I think for the most part, it's an idea of basically saying, I believe in some form of spirit, meaning, yes, this physical, tangible reality in which I find myself enslaved in this flesh and bones, that there's something beyond that that is deeply meaningful and life-giving. So but I don't want to be religious. I don't want to look like a Pharisee, or I don't want to look like someone that is you know, from some form of weird fundamentalist cult. And so we say, when we distance ourselves from religion in that sense, so we say, I'm spiritual, but not that. Which in itself is, sounds good, but at the end of the day, is, is basically another form of religion. It's another form of religion. So sociologists who have been studying this type of stuff, they, they realize that there's a variety of different types of religion. Number one, I would describe, you have a secular form of religion, you have spiritual form of religion, and spiritual could be a good spiritual, like a Christianity is kind of spiritual, but, uh, but at the same time, it also can be distorted as well. 
you have a materialistic form of religion, and then you have kind of even like on a broader scale, like a social type of religion. So, for example, you have a guy like John McWhorter, which was a, a very well-known author and has written a lot of different stuff and has been quoted in things like New York Times and whatnot. He wrote a book that actually describes the, the movement that has become defined as anti-racism. And again, his whole point is that, yes, and he's African-American, by the way, and his whole point is that, yes, anti-racism is good. We should all be anti-racist. But his whole point is that it's morphed into something that's become distinct from what it's set out to be. That it's set out to, to counteract and to, con, uh, to confront hatred in people's hearts. But it's morphed into something that's become fueled by hatred towards others. And his whole point is that this, and he, he makes, he, the reason why I'm, bringing him into this because he actually describes this. He says uh, anti-racism has become a, a, a new form of religion is the way he describes it. It's like the religion of anti-racism. And he has a whole writing. I so you can just Google him, kind of find his writings and all that and find him fascinating and interesting. But the point that I would make as we kind of move on from this, I want to just kind of point out that all human beings are innately religious. We're all innately religious. Every one of you. Some of you might be like, I'm the most least religious person I no, but we have various things that we hold on to and we turn them into like isms, right? And those become these foundational cornerstones in our lives that we define our lives around. And then we use those definitions of how we define our lives and we judge and accuse or excuse ourselves and or others and or judge other people. And this is the whole idea that I think is important for us to step back and just think about. Because, again, what we see here in the story is that religion, in a toxic form, actually puts Jesus to death. So this is why this matters. It actually works in opposition to the very heart of love that runs the cosmos, if I can put it in that context. In other words, to, to align with God who is all about creation, a new creation, is to step into life. To, to disalign, to be in malalignment with who God is, is to ultimately step into the forces of anti-creation and, and play an active role in deconstructing and destroying something that God says, I want to build life. So what we see here with regard to this toxic Jewish religion is he describes... And the Jews, he says, and the Jews came to Jesus. Now, when John writes about the Jews, he's not talking about Jewish people in this broad sense. He's, I, I, most scholars believe he's talking about a very specific select group of Jewish leadership that have, for the most part, kind of framed their own traditions and have elevated those traditions as a means of measuring themselves up against other people, but also accusing and judging all sorts of other people. That's why, in the context here, they're really upset. They're really upset if he didn't tap into that pathos. They're really upset with Jesus. Why? Because he healed somebody on a Sabbath day. Terrible, terrible thing. But that's, but that's what religion does. Religion causes us to not see the obvious good. Does that make sense? Like this type of toxic religion, it turns us away from doing good and being agents of good and resisting wickedness and brokenness in our world and becoming shaped by wickedness and brokenness. And that becomes sort of this definitive pattern in our life. And we become then agents of brokenness and destruction. 
That's what ends up happening. It's kind of like this weird jujitsu trick that the devil plays upon us and turns our energy against us to where then we end up being taken down by it. And so what we see with regard to this, like they take the Sabbath that was intended by God to be a means of rest. And they turn it into this, this law that if anybody violates it or breaks it, they actually had Sabbath police on hand to let you know that you failed. Uh, it's, it's not too unlike in some fundamentalist Muslim countries where they actually have a morality police walking through the streets. This is actually true. Like in Afghanistan and other places around the world where there are various forms of fundamentalist type uh, faith at, in, in control at the helm. That if you are not wearing your headscarf right, that's what's been happening in Iran. If you've been following that, paying attention to that, uh, there is a way of saying we're, gonna, we're going to embrace freedom. We're going to shed ourselves of these scarves. But, but that's a violation of uh, Islamic translation or interpretive law in that particular country. And it's, it was a capital offense. Many people have actually been crushed and killed and shamed and much more horrible things. I'm not going to even describe. But the point of the matter is, is that that's what toxic religion does. And so we see the same type of thing happening here. So Eugene Peterson describes with regard to the Sabbath. He says, Sabbath is about God and about how God forms us. It's not in the first place about what we do and don't do. It is about God. I love this. It is about God completing, resting, blessing, and sanctifying. I love that. So when we pause and reflect upon Sabbath, and we've seen this kind of baked into the Judeo-Christian worldview, is that it's a way of pausing and reflecting upon what God has done how that God has rested from his works, how that God has brought forth blessing. Ultimately, Jesus becomes the means by which all of this kind of comes through and how God sanctifies or separates, calls us into a place of aligning our lives with him. So what we see oftentimes as a result of that, though, in these various forms of toxic religion, it becomes about power. So, for example, according to an article I read in Psychology Today, it says this, power theory teaches that every system develops a subsystem. This is really interesting. That initially makes rules that are good for the system. But eventually, that governing subsystem makes rules that are only good for itself. Did you guys that? In other words, you can start out with a, a, a good intention that says we're going to help this segment of society that's marginalized or lost or crushed or oppressed or broken. But over time, what ends up happening is a weird morphing takes place. And those rules that started out saying we're going to try to help the segment of people, those rules become fundamental to the movement. And any tampering or tinkering with or challenging those rules becomes tantamount to heresy. And we see the same types of things happening in our world today. Nietzsche said this, whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he himself does not become a monster. Think about that. I mean, how many movies, storylines, plotlines have you seen where the one setting out uh, to, to fight injustice ends up using weapons of injustice to fight injustice? But that's, that's part of the human nature, isn't it? We can sometimes start out with good intentions to try to stand up for righteousness and goodness, but over time... It's like the devil, <laughs> darkness, has a tendency to lure us into its grip, and then we become bound by it. And then we become this instrument of darkness that we set out to fight against darkness. George Orwell 
described at the end of Animal Farm. He says, uh, just with regard with the disgusting image of pigs ultimately imitating their human oppressors. So, you know, if you're familiar with Animal Farm, it's kind of this revolt of animals, like going, it's attacking against uh, the human agents that were kind of oppressing them. They end up becoming just like their human oppressors. But this is kind of the nature of human beings. So as I think about it this way, toxic religion is typically characterized by these three things. I'm going to go through this real quickly. Number one, dogmatism. Dogmatism. It's this, the creation, the formation of certain codes of conduct and belief. Dogmatism. And in all false religions have had this. And even I would even add various forms of toxic Christianity have formed these things. I'm, I'm going to be really clear here. I'm not, I'm not like just looking out there at other forms uh, that are prevalent. I mean, I, again, I, I told you this last week. I just finished reading this book. I, I think it's called Conquerors um, or Conquest or something like that um, about uh, the Portuguese and how really as, as they were going around like touring the world and discovering, they were, they were, they literally led the charge radically of just the age of discovery. Um, and what they had done in the name of the name of Jesus, by the way, um, was, was horrendous. Again, with the Spaniards and the English and, you know, all sorts of other Western countries. And, but that's not too dissimilar from what was already happening in throughout African countries under the name of, of Islam and throughout uh, uh, Hindu countries within India under the name of their gods. But the point of the matter is, is that history, human beings have this long history of oppressing and distorting power based upon these various forms of toxic religion. So number one, dogmatism. Number two, self-righteous justification. This is the idea of saying, you know, I am looking at you, you're failing, but I'm succeeding. And we see this kind of play out in all forms of things, even today. It's like, again, we, we, we spent two and a half years, three years of this throughout the pandemic, like mask or to not mask. If you wear a mask, you're, 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 you're a horrible human being because you're giving into this. If you're not wearing a mask, you're a horrible human being because you hate all human beings. Uh, again, you have these radical polarizations. It's like, what, what is going on here? Like, these become forms of self-justification. Again, I'm not trying to be political here. I'm just trying to point out the obvious ease on the eye chart here. But the fact is, is that we're all prone to these types of things. You know, like, do you recycle? You don't recycle? I can't believe you're using a plastic straw. Do you know how many turtles you're killing? Like, I can't believe that. You're a horrible human being. Like, the the point that I make is is you drive an SUV. Do you realize how destructive that is to the planet? But the point that I'm making is this, guys. We all think about things that we want to frame our lives around to give ourselves meaning and purpose, self-justification. And it props us up to feel righteous about ourselves. So that we can then condescend and condemn someone else. And then lastly, it kind of leads to this sense of disdain. Disdain for the outsider. Disdain for the heretic. The one that's not keeping or abiding according to the dogmatism that's been set forth by the crew. Um, Eldest Huxley said this. He said, the surest way, listen carefully to this. uh, The surest way to work up a crusade in favor of some good cause is to promise people that they will have a chance of maltreating someone. To be able to destroy with good conscience, to be able to behave badly and call your bad behavior righteous indignation, air quotes. This is the height of psychological luxury, the most delicious of moral treats. Um, I'm reading a book right now. Uh, it's about the photographer in Auschwitz. It's a fascinating story. Um, he was actually Jewish, and he used Leica cameras, which is pretty awesome. But the, his his job was horrible. He literally... Uh, took photos of every inmate that was about to die. And 
within the story, you kind of hear like his interaction, not only with the people that he's taking photos of, but also the angst that he's feeling over wanting to help his own fellow Jewish people out, but knowing that their kapo is over them, they're horribly abusing people. And some of these people are like 19 years old. And they have this tremendous power to, dehum- to humiliate, to dehumanize, to demoralize another human being because they've been given power. Why? They act as this shocking thing. People that were part of the war effort from the German side actually saw themselves as agents of righteousness and good, promoting a just cause to destroy what they perceived as evil in the world in the form of Jewish human beings and others. It's despicable. We can look, about it, look at it now and just be like, how, how can that happen? But again, Germany was literally leading the charge in all technology, in all philosophy, in all arts, in all sciences prior to World War II. Do you know that? They were the most advanced nation on this planet. And yet, this was part of of the possibility that happened. How? I would say toxic religion. It was a form of distortion of how human beings see themselves and their part in this world. And so what we see very clearly here, that these religious leaders sought to put Jesus to death. And this kind of leads me to the last little thing and I'm done. We see the third character, third thing in this movement is Jesus. And specifically his actions and claims. Number one, his action. We see that Jesus actually heals on the Sabbath. We get this in verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8. It says, and Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And then we also saw right after that, it says that this happened on the Sabbath. Now, John wants to make sure that we know that these little details matter. That when Jesus performed this miracle, it was on this religious holy day. These religious leaders had elevated their traditions above what God actually said. And they missed the spirit of the law in order to adhere to what they viewed was the letter of the law. And they missed the entire mark of God, which, which should be a wake-up call, guys, for all of us, that all of us, all of us, no matter how good your intentions are, we are prone to missing something very obvious. Paul the Apostle, I think, is another case in point example of this. Paul actually saw his action prior to meeting Jesus as an act of righteousness. This is mind-blowing. He saw himself as a zealot, like actually defending God. And think about that. That should give us at least a sense of, of a pause and reflection of like, God, make sure my heart remains humble and repentant and open and malleable and teachable. God, speak to me. Guys, listen to me. If there are people in your life that care enough about you to speak truth into your life, listen to them. Don't shove off whatever it is they have to say. Again, test it, challenge it, question it. That's okay. But where do you align it to? Align it to what the scripture say. What's the heart of God in, the, in that matter? If it's something that aligns with God's heart, do everything in your power to align with that. And here's what we see is that with regard to Jesus, he does his healing on the Sabbath. Verse, uh, the second thing we see are his actions, or not only his actions, but also his claims. Verse 18, uh, sorry, 17 says this, Jesus actually claims to be God. And here's what he says in this language. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. So what Jesus 
seems to be indicating, again, just in case if you missed it, uh, John, the apostle, wants you to make sure that you understand verse 18. He says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, uh, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, so number one, but two, he was even claiming or calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So again, a lot of times people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Maybe not in the straight up words, like, hey guys, what's up? I'm Jesus uh, slash God. He may not have used language that you and I would have been familiar with or would have preferred. But, but again, Jesus, Jesus works on his own language, his own vocabulary. But he uses language that would have been familiar with people of his day. And he knows that by claiming, I'm working one with the Father. Whatever the Father does is exactly what I do. was another way of just a tantamount of, of, of putting himself on the same level with God. That he is equal with God. God is working. In that, in Jesus saying, everything you're watching me do is exactly what God would do. I'm forgiving sins. God forgives sins. I'm healing people. God's healing people. I'm working righteousness. God's working righteousness. I'm inviting you to trust me, to repent from your stories that you have adhered to and aligned yourselves by and been influenced by. I'm inviting you to Give your lives entirely over to me because this is what God the Father invites all of us to do. Lastly, I want to make a quick little comparison between uh, toxic religion and the gospel. And this is Tim Keller. If you're familiar with him, he said a handful of things. I think I might have it up on the screen. There you go. This is this. Religion says this. Toxic religion. Again, when I say religion, I'm obviously referring to a toxic form of religion. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Okay, just pause and think about that. What tribe that is defined by some form of toxic religion says, as long as I adhere to this particular uh, mantra or code of ethics, code of morality within this particular circle, then I'm accepted. I'm accepted by the group. I'm accepted by the people. I'm accepted by whoever's uh, faithful and loyal within that group's dynamics. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Because God loves me, because God has brought me into himself, Therefore, man, I, I want to obey him. I love him. Religion says uh, motivation is based on fear and insecurity. Gospel says motivation is based on grateful joy. Religion says I obey God in order to get things from God. Gospel says I obey God because he is my delight. He is my reward. Just period. Like, he is my reward. I'm not using God to get something from God. I'm not praying to God to somehow get God to leverage something that I feel is best for me. I'm seeking God, pressing into God, because God alone is a treasure, the treasure. God alone is my great delight. Uh, this is not up there, but I'll read this lastly one, and I'm done. Religion is, or says, my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work, or how my moral, uh, or how moral I am, and thus I often look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. So again, religion says, who I am, my identity, my purpose, my meaning is instilled in my life based upon how rigorously I devote myself to whatever the morales or ideas or thoughts are of said tribe or group. In other words, we find your justification, your purpose, your meaning in life based upon how rigorous you devote yourself to that. Again, that fits everything that you can think of in our world in terms of like an ideology. But the gospel says, my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for me 
I'm saved by grace, so I, can, I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different than me. Because only by grace I am what I am. In other words, I've been given something I don't deserve, but God has welcomed me in the very heart of things. I, what I want for us to see and think about in summary is, number one, toxic religion is ultimately destructive to you and to others. And Jesus invites you to come out of that story. So I don't know where you're at or how this even resonates with you, uh, but my invitation to you would be the, the path out of this is through what Scripture t- teaches as repentance, to turn from that story, to turn to an alternate story, i.e. the gospel. Uh, secondly, we see that Jesus heals outside of these expected laws, rules, and methods. Jesus is not bound by our ways of which we assume God should work. Jesus oftentimes does things that are way beyond our expectation. Lastly, Jesus is the creator God who's come to rescue, save, and renew. Jesus is the creator God who stepped into this world. The encounter that this paralyzed man had with Jesus would have been like tantamount what would have happened if Frodo had an encounter with Tolkien. This is what we're invited to think about. Like, God has come into this world. The author has stepped into this life to call us out, to bring clarity to the destructive, broken stories that we've given ourselves to, and to be met by this live wire we call Jesus, to be shocked into utter amazement of who he is. Christianity should never, ever, ever be boring. I should say, Christ, Jesus, should never, ever be born. Christianity sometimes can. I'll hand that to you. But Jesus should never be. If, if you're not shocked and amazed and blown away by Jesus, you may have never encountered him. And my hope and prayer today would be that that would change, that Jesus, the true living God and King, would radically meet us Right where we're at. This is the beauty of the story that we just read here. Jesus steps into this space that no one would have ever expected. Who would have ever gone? Why would God have ever gone to such a a forsaken, forbidden area filled with a lot of deep brokenness? We're told that there were hundreds of people there that were just horribly broken. And Jesus goes into that because that's what Jesus does. He loves you. He's for us. He invites us to be transformed by his goodness. So Jesus, again, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your love. Thank you for what you have called us to, to turn from our sin and our brokenness, to turn to you as the healer, as the good God. So Father, right now, empower us to be all that you call us to be. And we pray and ask all these things this morning. In Jesus' name, we all said, amen.